Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner, and this is a show to help you understand your money to help you understand the stock market better, and to keep up with legislation about financial issues, to understand financial planning concepts, and finally, in the last section, Ask Peggy, to submit questions to me so I can help you understand your money better. Those questions are best submitted at PeggyDoviak.com. You'll see a link on the homepage, and I'd love to hear from you. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Report for the week ending October 12th, 2018. And really, it's a Bears Market Report more than it's a Bulls Market Report for last week because the Dow went down a little over 4%. The S&P 500 closed just right at 4% down. The NASDAQ was 3.74% down. Gold was the bright spot at 1.24% up, and then oil was also down 3.74%. So that was the close as of Friday. I always tape on Mondays, and today the market is down a little. The NASDAQ is down the worst so far. It's still Monday morning, and it's down just about a percent. So what happened? Well, a lot of things happened, and a lot of things came together to cause this correction. It's still a correction. It's certainly not anywhere close to a market crash. Corrections are usually 7 to 10% declines. And so we are not in that territory except the NASDAQ, which has had sort of a bad month overall, could be close to correction territory. But remember, it went up the most. So the first thing is markets go down. I mean, we see it happen. We never like it when it happens. But this may be nothing more than just the market really looking for bad news to take a little bit of money off the table. And it is the beginning of the quarter. Remember at the end of September, I told you that markets typically will try to hold in for a quarter. And then if they're going to correct, they'll correct at the beginning of the next quarter quite frankly, because they know most people look at their portfolios about four times a year. So a lot of times, a bit of a market correction at the beginning of a quarter, um, the money managers will hold off selling. They may want to make some changes. They may want to make some trades, but they'll wait, and then they'll do it at the beginning. So, you know, to that end, it may be nothing more than that. The common wisdom on the street last week, it was because of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. I have a problem with this. I really don't think that's all of it because back in June, the Fed very clearly telegraphed where they were going with interest rates. At a level of clarity, I've just never really seen the Fed put out in a very long time. So the fact that the Fed raised rates should come as a surprise to no one. They said they were going to do it, and they did it. 
you know, it's possible that maybe the markets didn't believe it, but everyone keeps saying, you know, the economy is fabulous. Well, when the economy is fabulous, inflation tends to ramp up. And one of the things that the Fed is told to do is keep inflation from getting out of control. They have two tasks. The Federal Reserve only has two things they're responsible for. One is controlling inflation, and one is trying to help with employment numbers. So if you lower rates, you might make a more attractive business environment where people would hire. So really, that's all the Fed's task to do. And inflation's heating up a little. They don't want it to get ahead of them. And so they raised rates. I know the president's really mad about it. Presidents are typically angry when the Fed raises rates. They might not be quite so vocal, but, you know, it is a more restrictive economic environment. But there really is no sense that this is going to do any sort of long-term damage to the market. I just think the market's having a fit and will probably get over it. Certainly, we're going to watch it. Certainly, if more situations develop, I'll talk about it on this show and just watch this space. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update portion of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. I'm not totally sure that what I'm going to talk to you about today is legislation, but I think it's really important. And it was a study that was done on who do people prefer to work with, with their money. And so the general premise of the study was, was there a gender preference? So did women clients tend to prefer to work with women advisors? Did male clients tend to prefer with work with male advisors? And so that was the premise of the study. What's really interesting about their premise is the answer to that question is no. There actually is not a preference in in gender. So that's interesting. But the rest of the study, which I think sort of got buried, is the part that I want to talk to you about today because I think it's really, really important. And it doesn't have any sort of a gender bias either way. So this works for anybody listening to the radio today. So what they found in this study is that people tended to prefer to work with financial planners rather than investment advisors. And they found that women particularly preferred working with a financial planner rather than an investment advisor. And men preferred it, but but not as much of a percentage. So I guess there still is a little bit of gender, but that's still not the point that I'm wanting to make. My problem with this study is I think they didn't set up the parameters correctly. I think that there's an inherent flaw to the fact of asking someone if they want to work with an investment advisor or a financial planner. Because an investment advisor is a kind of license that someone holds with the state, and they also may be monitored by the feds, depending upon how much money they manage, that allows them to trade securities for clients. So an investment advisor is making investment choices, helping the client. They place trades. They look on the surface a lot like a stockbroker, which is the only other option that you have if you want to work with the public and help them with their money. 
So a stockbroker has a broker-dealer. Stockbrokers are compensated differently than investment advisors. Stockbrokers typically take commissions. Investment advisors, because they don't work for brokerage firms, they charge fees. Remember, the investment advisor has the fiduciary responsibility where the stockbroker doesn't. But here's the deal. Whenever you're working with anyone with your money, I know this is true in the state of Oklahoma, and I think it's true all the way around the country. You can't be a financial planner and not hold one of those licenses. You either have a Series 7, which is the stockbroker's license, or you have the 65, which is the investment advisor's license, or you own a six, you, you have a six and 63, which allows you to sell mutual funds. So the Series 7 broker works for the brokerage firm. They sell securities. Sometimes they offer financial advice. There's areas right now where um, a lot of us think that might be really confusing to consumers, especially because that broker doesn't have the fiduciary duty. They do have a best interest, know your customer, but it's right there is where that whole fiduciary fight keeps breaking down. The 6 and 63 advisor is typically an insurance agent, and they typically hold the 6 and 63 so they can sell annuities. Annuities have mutual funds. When you have a six, a Series 6 license and a Series 63 license, you're not allowed to trade in stocks and bonds, but you are allowed to trade in mutual funds. So any insurance agent that you're working with who's selling you a variable annuity that has investment products in it is licensed that way. If you're working with an investment advisor, they hold the 65 license and they charge the fee and they're the fiduciary. But where I'm really confused about this study is you work with a financial planner, but you typically will have a second license underneath that. Financial planner is not a legal status. I know that the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards is working very hard to create more of a distinction where um, being a CFP professional is not just a designation. There's a lot of us who would like to see some form of licensure required to call yourself a financial planner. But the truth is anyone can call themselves a financial planner. They can't call themselves a certified financial planner practitioner unless they hold the CFP marks, but they can call themselves a financial planner. What does this mean to you, the consumer? Because I panicked a little bit when I saw this, and I feel like the public just does not understand what's going on. And, and I know that it's difficult, and I know that it's complicated, but, but hear me out. You're going to work with someone who has some kind of a business structure. It's very important that you know how they're licensed. It's very important that you know whether or not they have to act in your best interest. And it's very important that you know how they're paid. But that person in any of those capacities can be a financial planner. 
What you have to ask is, what does financial planning mean to that advisor or broker? So when they call themselves a financial planner, what sort of certifications or designations do they hold in financial planning training? Like I said, CFP practitioner, I believe is the gold standard, but there's other designations out there. So it's very important when someone calls themselves a financial planner to ask them what their credentials are, because it doesn't have anything to do with how they're licensed in the securities business. So ask them, if they're not a CFP practitioner, ask them about the designations they hold, ask them what they had to do to get those designations, whether or not there was a closed book exam, you might even ask how many questions were on the exam. Because what you want to know is that the person who is calling themselves a financial planner has adequate training to be able to deal with your financial situation, or if they don't know it off the top of their head, they need to know where to go to find the information. So when someone just calls themselves a financial planner randomly, you don't know how much they know what they're talking about. There's some math equations in financial planning, like figuring out how much you need to save for retirement. It's a math problem. It's not really a complicated math problem, but if you haven't gotten the training in how to do it, it is a complicated math problem, and it's a very difficult problem for the average consumer to try to solve. So be careful that you know what they know. Be careful that you know the limitations. Maybe the person you're working with doesn't do any income tax planning. That's actually pretty common with some financial planners. But if you're needing income tax planning, you need to find someone who does that or get your financial planner and your CPA on the same page and make sure that you're getting one plan that makes as much sense as it can for your situation and that you know that that financial planner actually is able to help you in the ways you need help. I know the term financial planner sounds less intimidating than investment advisor, but the truth is they're completely unrelated situations, and I want to make sure that you're working with the person who's going to do the best job with your money as possible. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I want to talk about substantially equal periodic payments, also known as 72T. <laughs> so since that sounds so exciting, let's talk about what it means. Let's say that you have an IRA and it's gone up a lot in value. It's really appreciated. This happened in, in real life in the dot-com bubble where people were holding investments and they're going up 100, 200, 300%. And those investments are in an IRA. Well, you know the traditional IRA rules. You can't take out any money until you're 59 and a half. You have to start taking required minimum distributions at 70 and a half. If you take out money early, you have the 10% penalty. Well, somebody decided that it would be really cool if we came up with a way so people could access their IRAs prior to age 59 and a half 
and not as a function of some of the exceptions that allow the early distributions without penalty. You know, if you're absolutely in a financial disaster storm caused by outside situations like health problems, you might talk to your financial advisor and see if you would, if there's no other money anywhere else, be eligible to take some money out of your IRA from the situations that exempt the 10% penalty. I'm not advocating this. There's a million reasons why not touching your IRA are important, but I want to make sure that you understand that the ability to access the funds because of a financial emergency is not the same thing as just taking the payments early and creating a series of substantially equal periodic payments, which is what this section of the show is about. This section of the show, we're talking about the ability to access the money for no good reason other than the fact that you want it. So what they do is they allow you to start taking distributions from your IRA at any age. Now, here's the catch. You have to continue to take the distributions for five years or until you are 59 and a half, whichever is longer. So let's say that you started taking substantially equal periodic payments at age 58. Well, you'd have to take those payments until you're 63. If you started taking the payments when you were 39 because you had something go public, like what happened in the dot-com, you would have to take the distribution for 20 years. You, you choose a method of calculating the distribution. It's one of three methods. It's either the amortization method or the annuitization method or the required minimum distribution method. Now, amortization is calculated sort of like when you amortize a loan, how much you take every month or how much you pay. When you use the amortization method of taking the substantially equal periodic payments, it's sort of like you're making yourself payments like a loan payment to you. The annuitization is if you have an annuity and you annuitize it, then there's a certain amount of money that you get every month for the rest of your life. They calculate the um, SEPP through an annuitization method as well. Then finally, the last way you calculate how much money you have to take is through the required minimum distribution method. Required minimum distribution is the same table that you would use to take your distributions when you're 70 and a half. It's an IRS table. Now, realize that when you set these methods up, it doesn't mean you're taking all of the IRA out, okay? It's not like on the RMD method, and if you're going to take it for five years, that you're going to take 20% of your IRA each year. You're not. But you are going to have, you have to take the amount for the RMD. Here's where things break down pretty quickly. I know that this is used a lot of times when someone is about to retire. So let's say that you've had a job for a number of years and you're eligible to retire at age 55. So you do. You retire at age 55 and then you get a phone call from a financial advisor who says, hey, 
why don't you take your 401k plan and roll it into an IRA? Well, if you do that, then you can't access the money, right? Because you've got um, until you're 59 and a half until you can take the money out of the IRA without penalty. And then the advisor says, oh, don't worry about it. We'll just 72T it and you can start taking distributions today. That's the most common place people see it. It also happens anytime there's a stock market bubble where people are making money just hand over fist and they don't want to wait until they're 59 and a half. The problem when you start an, an SEPP or 72T is once you determine how much money you want to take every year that you can take every year, you can't change the amount. So in other words, if you need additional money, let's say you have a real catastrophe and you really need additional funds, once you've set up substantially equal periodic payments, you can't change it. You also have to take the payment every single month. And that becomes an issue because if you take more money or if it's a catastrophe and you have to take more money, then you have taxes and you have penalties and the whole SEPP thing just falls completely apart. So the only time it works is if you're fairly close to 59 and a half and you know you're not going to need any more money and you decide to do it. Now, two cautionary tales here. Cautionary tale number one. Remember the dot-com crash? Remember what happened to the stock market? Well, a lot of people had started taking distributions in their 30s. You know, this was when that whole tech craze hit in 2000 and following. And so they started taking the distributions from their IRA because they wanted to do it. They had a 401k, they rolled it over, they had a ton of money. It was all in stocks that don't exist anymore. But at one point, they had a lot of money and they start taking distributions. Remember, you're not allowed to stop. Well, if they had the amortization or the annuitization way of calculating it, some of them began to run out of money because they had to take a certain amount every month out and the account kept going down. So they started actually physically running out of money in the account. So the IRS actually had to make some changes and say, okay, fine. So if you want to make a change, you can change one time to the RMD method. Required minimum distribution method is always a function of a percentage of your account balance as of December 31st of the previous year. So rather than a set dollar amount, it's based off of where your account balance is. So as the account balance is dwindling, you recalculate that RMD every year based off of that amount of money. So be really careful because if the market turns against you, you can be um, using a much, much higher percentage of the money out of your account than you were anticipating. So that's cautionary tale number one. Cautionary tale number two is just a general financial planning concern. Remember that we save IRAs, individual retirement accounts, so that we have enough money in retirement. 
The problem that I see when people begin to access their money too early is that they might not have enough money to last until they're 90 or 95 years old. Remember that today, life expectancy is well into the 70s. And if you have good nutrition and a safe place to live and adequate health care, you could easily live to be into your 90s. And so when you take your IRA in your 40s or even the middle of your 50s, the biggest risk that I see is that you don't have enough money to last until you die. So before you get the idea of accessing your IRA through substantially equal periodic payments, also known as 72T, you need to do some very, very careful financial planning because I don't want your desire to have more income today cause you to be in a lot of trouble later in life. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And remember, if you've got a question, that you can go to PeggyDoviak.com and you'll see a box to submit your question right there on the home screen. And then I can try to provide you with an answer on the air. So today's question is a question that I actually get very often, which is, Peggy, if I want to make a trade in my IRA, are there going to be any tax consequences? And the answer is no. You probably only have two kinds of investment accounts. You have an IRA, you have a 401k, and then you might have a taxable account. The taxable account could be an individual account. It could be a trust account. It could be a transfer on death account. But basically, it's non-retirement money. If you place a trade in a non-retirement money account, then yes, you will trigger capital gains if you sell something. So let's say you own an individual account and you buy stock ABC at $10 a share and later you sell it at 20. That would be awesome. That $10 of gain is taxed at the capital gains rate in an individual account. And that happens the year you place the trade. If you get any dividends or interest in that individual account, that's also taxed at the capital gains rate in the year you receive it. Now, if you have money in an IRA or a 401k, and the IRA is a traditional IRA or a Roth or um, a non-deductible IRA, so any kind of IRA, When you put the money in a traditional IRA, you put it in in pre-tax dollars. If you make a trade inside the account, absolutely nothing happens to your taxes. If you get dividends or interest, absolutely nothing happens to your taxes. If, however, you take a distribution out of that IRA and it was funded in pre-tax dollars, then that distribution is taxed at your ordinary income tax rate, 
not the capital gains rate, but it's taxed at the ordinary income tax rate, and it's every dollar you take out because you put the money in in pre-tax dollars. So you would get that from a 401k distribution. You would get that from a traditional deductible IRA. Non-deductible IRAs, you didn't get the deduction for the contribution. So when the when you take the distribution, only the growth is taxed at ordinary income tax. It's not a capital gain. It's ordinary income tax. And with a Roth, if you follow all the rules, the distributions are income tax-free. But simply trading inside your 401k or your IRA or your Roth is not going to create a taxable event. And any income that you receive in through dividends or interest is not going to create a taxable event. This is why some people put their higher dividend paying or interest bearing items inside the IRA so they don't have to deal with that capital gains tax every year. But that's a conversation for you and your financial advisor. So if you need to sell something in your IRA, don't panic. You're not going to trigger tax. If you need to sell something in your tri- in your just individual taxable account, never let your tax tail wag the dog. You're better off to pay some capital gains than make bad investment decisions simply because you don't want to pay the tax on it. And so you don't make the trade that you should make. So that's all for this week's show. I can't believe how fast it went. Here's hoping the market's better this week. I'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.